Good afternoon, colleagues. Uh, this is Dr. Richard McCallum, the uh, editor-in-chief of the American of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, which represents our society, the American Federation for Medical Research. As you know, we do a monthly podcast trying to identify topics that will be of interest to the audience, um, try to vary it each month. And we've done nearly 15 or so now, and I think we've got a very good track record. And this, this will be continued this month because we have an excellent topic, uh, the world of deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and we've got a great speaker. Actually, I'm very happy to have a speaker who's from uh, my university here, a faculty member at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and someone that goes back to my time when I was chair of medicine here, the founding chairman, we are just starting the program, and he was one of my residents. And I'm very proud of, um, of where he's come from there. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about uh, Dr. Mateo Porras Aguilar. Uh, Dr. Porras Aguilar is an internist, hospitalist, originally from Mexico, formal training in um, area of focused competency in adult clinical thrombosis, anticoagulation care, medical degree, as I said, in the Mexican faculty uh, of medicine at La Salle University, then came to Texas Tech for his internal medicine residency. And from there, uh, he moved on to, he was always telling me, I, I really have to do something either in pulmonary medicine or in cardiovascular medicine. So eventually he did go to San Antonio and uh, was able to pursue his passion there and be well-trained as well as move on to um, McGill University, the home of Osler uh, here in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and learned about the area of adult thrombosis medicine. Um, he came back to us here on our new campus, what's called the uh, campuses on the west side and uh, Trans, Mountain. Trans Mountain campus. And he's an assistant professor of medicine in that, in that facility. And he's heading up uh, our anticoagulation team. He's been telling me about responders and how they have really transformed this area of uh, inpatient um, pulmonary embolism care. So I, there's a number of areas we could talk about, including the recent popularity or popular press about concerns on um, thrombosis and COVID vaccines, particularly the Johnson & Johnson one. So we'll have a lot of things to cover in the next 20 or more minutes. So welcome, Mateo. It's glad to have you. Thank you very much, Dr. McCallum. It's uh, thank you for your kind introduction. Um, it's a really an honor and a pleasure. I would like to thank also the American Federation of Medical Research of the United States and the GIM for this kind and great invitation this evening to, to, to join to share with you. Well, let's get back to basics here. So our, our society is made up of subspecialists, internal medicine physicians. We we cover the whole waterfront. But invariably, your topic is a very central topic. We can't ever not diagnose this or 
or misdiagnose it. So why don't you help us focus on one of the most common risk factors, the symptoms, the signs that would make us suspicious of brewing or developing a pulmonary embolus. Exactly, Dr. McCarroll. So yes, definitely, um, as we know, uh, venous thromboembolism encompasses, uh, it's a wide clinical spectrum of syndromes in which it, it uh, involves uh, acute deep vein thrombosis and acute pulmonary embolism. Interestingly, uh, venous thromboembolism is actually the third most common cause of cardiovascular death in our world. Uh, is just behind um, acute coronary syndromes, uh, heart attack, and just behind acute ischemic stroke. So it's 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 a very it's an important public uh, health problem. It's a big big uh, public health burden here in not in the Western world but in the, in, in general. Um, it's actually the number one most preventative cause of death within the hospital. Uh, as a matter of fact, one in four person is going to die in, in, from a thrombotic episode in general. And uh, interestingly, 60% of the hospitalized of, uh, persons uh, in the hospital, including surgical patients and medical patients, uh, may develop afterwards or during their course of their hospitalization a venous thrombotic episode. In this particular case, either a DVT or a, an acute pulmonary embolism that could be uh, very, very in close proximity with a silent deep vein thrombosis. And it could be manifested as a pulmonary embolism as the first sign and symptoms. Uh, um, the most important risk factors, if we go back into the 1800s uh, and into the 19th century, uh, the well-renowned pathologist, Rudolf Birkow from Germany, uh, had described back in the back in the centuries three main risk factors in which it involves overall uh, the uh, uh, other risk factors for uh, DVT and PE. And basically, I'm going to mention the three main risk factors that we have learned over and over again over the medical medical school. The number one is venous stasis. Uh, which is uh, patients that, for example, stay in the hospital immobilized uh, for longer period of times, days, sometimes weeks, and they develop a DVT or a PE. Uh, patients, for example, with um, endothelial injury or vascular injury. COVID-19 is a perfect example of a model of vascular injury, endothelial injury, endothelial activation, platelet activation, and subsequently down the road with a coagulation cascade formation of blood loss and intravascular blood loss. And the other major risk factor is, is also hypercoagulability. Uh, also COVID-19 may play a role in suffer, for example, hypercoagulability that could be sometimes genetic, could be inherited, or it could be acquired. So with all these three risk factors, you can actually broaden them up and bring them together to try to identify which are the patients that are at the highest risk of developing a VTE or a venous thromboembolic event during their hospitalization. Um, so uh, it's very, very interesting, for example, pregnant people, uh, post-surgical people, certain surgical procedures uh, confer higher risk factors more than the others. For example, orthopedic procedures like hip replacement, knee replacement, hip arthroplasty, acute hip fractures that also 
you know, they have also vascular injury and they, people that are fractured, they are immobilized. They have actually over there two, two, two resectors to consider. And that is the main importance, how we try to emphasize thromboprophylaxis, adequate and appropriate on time thromboprophylaxis in our medical patients and also in our surgical patients. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, this is the most uh, preventable cause of death in hospital. And despite uh, making awareness and having a world day thrombosis on October 13, which is was in which Rudolf Virko was born in October 13. And that's why we celebrate that day the World Thrombosis Day, we're trying to make awareness every single, every single World Thrombosis Day, every single year, but we still have way, way to go uh, in order to, to make a better job. I think we have a lot of room to improve and to educate our physicians, our colleagues, our healthcare providers, our nurses, our hospital staff, and our patients as well on detecting uh, signs and symptoms of uh, DVT and PE and how to seek uh, for medical attention in a prompt basis before good. fatality. Well, yeah, and and your sub sub specializations a long way from my days as a resident, where uh, we sort of covered everything. Now I see uh, evolving, and people like yourself are heading up uh, the so-called pulmonary embolism response teams. Perts, um, tell me a bit about the development of that concept and uh, what you see as their evolving role in, in hospitals and ICUs in this country? Yes, it's a very interesting question, Dr. Mercado. So the pulmonary embolism response uh, were born initially back in 2012 uh, at the Massachusetts General Hospital. They were the number one, the first hospital in the U.S. Uh, to, to start up and to institute uh, a hot, uh, sorry, uh, a, a specialized multidisciplinary team. There are several specialties uh, involved in the, in the pulmonary embolism response team. Um, there are multiple specialties. I'm going to go through that in a minute. But basically, the main objective of having a designated PER team in our hospital is to try to uh, risk stratify, diagnose, and treat, uh, and make it a a streamlined type of treatment and diagnostic approach in a, in a very complex, very particular clinical scenario for every single patient that comes with a, with a DVT or with an acute PE. So the idea is that if, for example, we have a cold heart and we have a cold stroke in our hospitals, why not developing a cold pulmonary embolism in which the per teams, they get activated. It could be activated from many part of the hospital the ER, the OR, from the medical ward, from the surgical ward, or even in an outside facility to be transferred this patient in which SPERT can assess the patient in, an, in a fast, uh, in an appropriate way to risk stratify how sick they are and to institute within the first 90 minutes of activation of a consultation in a very fast way, activate resources within the hospital to decide what is gonna be, and the decision is multidisciplinary by consensus to decide what are we gonna, how we're gonna approach diagnostic and therapeutic wise a particular patient with a very complex venous thromboembolic disease. In this particular case, not, not, not everything fit all, right? So uh, I guess it's gonna be 
uh, the idea is to improve outcomes at the very end, is to improve quality of life and to improve survival in these patients. And who makes up this team again? So I have a mnemonic for that actually. So per, so P, the pulmonologist intensivist plays a good, an inter, a very important role. E, emergency medicine doctors or an endovascular physician. So it could be a cardiologist, an invasive cardiologist, or an invasive vascular radiologist, right? The R stands for diagnostic radiologist. It's gonna be very important always to review uh, images and review clot extension and clot burden in these particular patients, either from the legs or to review an angiogram, a CT angiogram, or a BQ scan or a chest X-ray to decide how big and how, how uh, compromised is the pulmonary vasculature or the deep venous system, for example. And uh, the T stands for thrombosis expert or hematologist. So, per, so that's a way to remember, right? So some PERTs can, uh, uh, can be different, per, for, by every hospital or for every hospital, not all of them are going to have the resources, right? So it's going to be depending on the local resources and the and the expertise resources. What are you going to have in a in a in a, in a defined part or in a particular part? For example, in our in my hospital in Trans Mountain in Texas Tech, we don't have a cardiothoracic surgeon twenty four seven to perform embolectomies. But again. Uh, we can have another resources that we can activate with cardiologists, with pulmonologists, with critical care, and we can have a very good care and, and um, provide the best care uh, ever for a particular patient with a very, very sick or very, very severe significant pulmonary embolism. Uh, talk to me a bit about uh, when the team arrives and you start uh, debating the best approach, we have this systemic thrombolytic, so-called clot busters. Uh, tell me a bit about the decision making and when that when that button is pushed. That is correct. So uh, actually, when you have a pulmonary embolism patient with uh, that comes very, very sick, uh, we try to risk stratify. I think we start off with an adequate and an appropriate fast prompt risk, risk stratification of the patient. We basically look at the vital signs. So if the patient has signs and symptoms of shock, a cardiogenic shock, if the patient is significantly tachycardic, if the patient blood pressure is actually borderline or is actually low, so patients that become hypotensive, very, very hypoxemic, tachycardic, and with their shock index are above one, and uh, they are hyperperfusing, mental status changes, um, uh, renal failure, or uh, renal compromise, liver compromise, uh, brain compromise with hyperperfusion. Those are the sickest patients. Uh, so we, we already have identified, once we have the diagnosis of a P and the patient becomes hypotensive, that is the number one indication to consider, and it's a class 1A in guidelines of using systemic thrombolysis. Now, at the very same time, we're doing the risk stratification to see how sick a patient is, at the same time, we need to take a look at contraindications for systemic thrombolysis, right? Absolute contraindications and relative contraindications. So that is gonna give you a gamut of possibilities to detect which patients may have um, a high risk profile of bleeding in which we cannot thrombolyze these patients with systemic clot busters like alteplase, tenecteplase. And at the same time, uh, we can identify the highest risk, the highest sickest patients that they come 
with cardiogenic shock because a pulmonary obstructive process that are low risk for bleeding or they don't have any other contraindications, like for example, uh, brain tumors, uh, recent ischemic stroke within the last six months, or an active gastrointestinal bleeding, for example, or a recent surgery within the last six weeks. Those are the patients that actually are uh, very difficult to offer them a systemic thrombolysis, but in the right patient with the right appropriate risk stratification in both sides. In terms of how sick the patient comes, but also what is the risk of bleeding at the same time, we come together unanimously, or sorry, as a consensus for a final decision to, to try to detect on time, which is the best candidate to offer them systemic thrombolysis, of course, in which benefits may outweigh the risks of those, of those uh, very, very important medications. However, we have the fear as a physicians of the bleeding. Uh, I mean, the bleeding consequences after giving thrombolytics. More specifically, we as physicians, we are extremely afraid about intracranial bleeds after giving clot busters, right? Because we have two to 3% chance of having a patient after using systemic thrombolysis to, 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 to have uh, intracranial bleeds. Two out of 100 patients may have the risk of having bleeding inside of their heads. But again, with the right, with the right screening, with the right stratification and choosing correctly these patients, I believe the less likely we're gonna face these consequences or these adverse effects on, the, on down the road. Okay, well, let's talk about perhaps a few days have gone by, but we're still finding out that we're not resolving perhaps the uh, hypoxemia, the dyspnea, exertional activities, um, even the chest x-ray, perhaps we're getting into this, uh, you know, more severe unresolved issues. Uh, what, what other options, what, what ideas do we come up with then to try to address, I don't know what that is, 10%, 5% of patients, but a subset that are somewhat uh, slow to resolve. Exactly. So a very important part of the patients, even after correct anticoagulation, when they are in their long-term treatment with anticoagulation, and for example, patients that they were discharged from the hospital and they've been on anticoagulation for like three to six months, and we decided to prolong anticoagulation, sometimes they have symptoms despite adequate treatment with blood thinners, right? So they have shortness of breath, they have fatigue. Uh, this is a disorder that is called the post-pulmonary embolus syndrome. And it can be subdivided into two main groups, a chronic thromboembolic disease and a chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which is the end result of an unresolved acute pulmonary embolism. Patients, they have sometimes organized blood clots with fibrosis, with, uh, with spider webs within the pulmonary vessels, and that can uh, promote pulmonary vascular remodeling, increasing the pulmonary arterial pressures, and ultimately develop what is called chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And we're talking about, depending on the series, the incidence of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which stands for CTAF, it's between 3% to 6% of the general population after having an acute PE. Sometimes uh, patients, they, uh, they develop what is called a honeymoon period. The honeymoon period has been described in which a, a particular patient develop an acute pulmonary embolism that becomes silent 
And then we figure out that he has chronic thrombolic disease. So this is a very, very interesting topic uh, that is of debate, but this is the most uh, long, uh, the most uh, uh, important uh, functionality uh, limitation that the patient can have down the road despite adequate treatment with anticoagulants. Do you, do you try to change anticoagulants? Do you try to understand if they've got some gammopathy of the blood or there's some other factor that's limiting their response? Do you double up on the anticoagulants? Do you have some tricks? Exactly. So uh, a very, very interesting question. I believe, Dr. McCallum, this particular patient should continue extending the therapy beyond the six months of the anticoagulation. Uh, most, most patients, most of these patients, actually all of these patients, are, they're going to need to receive anticoagulation for the rest of their lives. Um, we continue with the same doses of anticoagulation with the ultimate goal to prevent recurrence of a venous thromboembolic disease on top of the chronic disease. And the most important thing here is to, uh, is to determine if a, if a patient has pulmonary hypertension associated to chronic thromboembolic disease. There are nowadays uh, therapies that they have developed, certain specific pulmonary vasodilators uh, and pulmonary medications for pulmonary arterial hypertension in particular to continue treatment on top of the anticoagulation to try to decrease the pulmonary pressure and to improve quality of life and to improve functional capacity in these patients. As a matter of fact, back in 2014, a medication that is called Riosiwat, which is a selective pulmonary vasodilator in which is a, a cyclic AMP analog has been recently approved by the FDA for the treatment, for the medical treatment of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Now, the definite in certain subgroup of patients in which they have proximal disease, in which they have, for example, the main pulmonary arteries involved and the lobal arteries, and they can extend this fibrotic block clot down distally, they can be evaluated for surgery. This is a surgical procedure called pulmonary thromboendarterectomy. And this is one of the only surgical procedures in which you can have a curative effort for pulmonary hypertension. So it goes beyond the medical therapy. So I believe having a pulmonary hypertension center of excellence and a referral to a pulmonologist and, and a cardiologist, again, as a multidisciplinary team to decide which patients are the uh, the appropriate patients for surgery versus which patients they have more distal disease, more affection in the small vessels. Those are the ones that we treat medically and we treat with, the, with also anticoagulants. Now, it is very important to emphasize every single patient, no matter what subtype of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension they have, they need to be in anticoagulation for the rest of their lives, even after the pulmonary hypertension has been cured. Because again, what is the main objective of having them in anticoagulants is to prevent venous thromboembolism down the road, another acute episode. Now, there are certain thrombophilias that have been described associated with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. In up to 10% of those cases, sometimes um, antiphospholipid syndrome may play a role. Sometimes we screen these patients for yeah, this type of uh, high-risk acquired thrombophilias like uh, 
uh, antiphospholipid syndrome, lupus anticoagulant, look for beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies, anti-cardiolipin antibodies, and this is where it becomes more interesting because uh, you know, we need to select appropriately which patients may have uh, risk factors or which patients that may be a candidates for thrombophilia workup like uh, genetic or inherited thrombophilias like factor-related mutation or protrombin gene mutation, or in this particular case, antiphospholipid syndrome, which is quite high prevalent. One to two out of 10 patients with chronic thromboembolic disease may have antiphospholipid syndrome. And the treatment may change completely. The, the approach may change completely for, from, for example, uh, having a patient on a direct oral anticoagulant like a pixaban or a doxaban or a rivaroxaban. If a patient has a triple positive antibody antiphospholipid syndrome, though direct oral anticoagulants, they're not gonna do the job of preventing more blood clots. We need to switch them to warfarin. We need to, we need to switch them to vitamin K antagonists. And that is the importance of uh, how to properly select the adequate anticoagulant in a, in a, in a particular phenotype of patient. Well, uh, let's finish up with the, the topical world today uh, with the COVID-19 vaccinations. There's been a, a little bit of a, a well, ripple effect uh, with the Johnson & Johnson products, certainly some unexplained cerebral thrombosis has developed and some concerns were raised, although it's something like one in a million, more than rare, but it obviously got some press. Uh, do you wanna give your perspective on any lingering concerns or questions about the vaccines and how a thrombotic event may have occurred? Very, very interesting question, Dr. McCallum. As a matter of fact, yes, uh, there have been lately in the last couple of months, maybe two to three months, the FDA and the CDC and the European Medicine Agency has been reported actually uh, thrombotic events with uh, certain uh, types of vaccine. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are the two main uh, type of vaccines, which are vector DNA, uh, vector viral driven vaccinations, the way they, they uh, synthesize the vaccine. Um, the Europeans have been described in the last couple of months a phenomenon in which uh, there's an immune response, an immune response in which platelets get activated uh, and they provoke and they activate the coagulation cascade. It's a very similar phenomenon that what is what is uh, uh, what is uh, produced by an entity that is a very very really rare entity that is called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Um, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is, a, is an immune thrombotic disorder in which after ex, a, a certain patient gets exposed to heparin, they can develop antibodies uh, against uh, after exposure of heparin. In this case, the exposure of the vaccine, and they can activate the platelets. And due to platelet activation, these patients may develop clots, for example, in unusual sites. Uh, they have been described uh, uh, venous thrombotic episodes, for example, in the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and they have been describing epi uh, episodes of splanchnic vein thrombosis in the portal vein system, in the superior mesenteric vein, in the inferior mesenteric vein, and lately also they have been recorded. They have been reported, sorry, uh, arterial thromboembolic events. We don't really know uh, the pathophysiology is still under investigation. <coughs> sorry, but. Investigators have been described that it's a very similar immune-mediated 
um, <coughs> process in which a platelet gets activated and they uh, activate the coagulation cascade and that's why they produce these uh, fatal uh, thrombotic episodes. I mean, the, the way to diagnose them is very complex, but it's a very similar clinical picture as how to diagnose heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with thrombosis. We see normally these patients that come to the emergency department, for example, with DVTs and PEs, but on top of that, their platelets are extremely low uh, normally occurs between, between day number two and day number 16 post-vaccination. So the clinical history is very important. When they obtain the vaccine, the vaccine, how long ago they get vaccinated, what type of symptoms. And if we see a patient with a Johnson & Johnson vaccine or an AstraZeneca vaccine with low platelets, and we document objectively a thrombotic episode either in the brain, either in the, either in the belly with splatny pain thrombosis or even a DVT or a PE, the, I should strongly suggest to consult a thrombosis expert, our hematologist, and do not give patients heparin. We need to treat these patients very differently because if it's an immunological phenomenon very similar to HIT, to heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, it's an absolute contraindication giving them heparin because you're going to make it worse. You're going to make that blood clot actually propagate, increase, and the patients can die. So. <laughs> instituting therapies with a non-heparin anticoagulant is going to be one of the main treatments of choice, along also with intravenous immunoglobulin for a couple of days, and also IV corticosteroids. We're going to see a response in the platelets coming up, and the thrombotic we can mitigate that thrombotic episode, and the patients can actually overcome these fatal outcomes, these fatal adverse effects from the vaccine. Now, I would strongly recommend to please get vaccinated despite these uh, very rare occurrences. Yeah. I mean, it is more probable for us to die from COVID-19, getting hospitalized and then have a BTE in the hospital than to die from a COVID, uh, sorry, from a COVID-19 vaccine related uh, autoimmune thrombotic episode. Uh, they're trying still to, uh, to make the right terming, the right terminology for that syndrome. Now it's vaccine-induced uh, thrombotic immune thrombocytopenia. It's called BEAT. But again, this is something that is uh, very dynamic and it's under, the, it's under research. And I think very soon we're going to come with some uh, preliminary guidelines from the group of experts in Europe and in the United States studying this phenomenon. Thank you, Mateo. Uh, I think you're right. Let's put it in perspective go out and be vaccinated, there's probably more chance of having an accident driving home tonight uh, than there is exactly. of that ever happening to you. We don't want to yeah. decrease or limit vaccinations at this point. Well, let me say, Mateo, we wish you the very best as you begin your academic career here at Texas Tech. Uh, we're glad to have you here and we look forward to uh, interacting with you. We in the GI world sometimes see a bit of the side effects of anticoagulation, as you've mentioned. So we continue yes. to interact and we will be looking forward to seeing your research evolve uh, in the next few years. So on behalf of the American Federation for Medical Research, let me thank you. Let me say to the audience, we've had another great podcast. I want to recognize my colleague, uh, Karina Espino, who loyally is on my left side in this case. 
helping us make sure these podcasts really do take place in a high quality manner. And they do. We commend them to you and your colleagues to listen to. And as with Dr. Uh, as with Matteo, we certainly encourage you to consider sending publications, manuscripts to me at the AFMR Journal of Investigative Medicine, case reports to our Journal of Investigative Medicine, high impact case report journals uh, with Dr. McFarl as the, as the chief editor. Uh, please support the journal, support the organization, and we look forward to educating you in the future uh, with more mo monthly podcasts. With that, I'll say again, uh, Dr. Porus Aguadala, thank you very much for this afternoon. And Mateo is a personal friend and colleague. All the very best for your career. Thank you, colleagues. We'll say good afternoon and see you next time. Bye-bye.